you have your Bibles, please turn uh, to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, and we're going to begin looking at verses 12 to 19. We're going to begin at 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Now, even if you don't have kids in, in public school or your kids aren't school age, you probably have, have seen that at least some schools are starting, are starting up again. You maybe have noticed the change in traffic patterns on the highway as school starting affects different leaving times and all of a sudden the drive home is easier or worse. You may have seen increased difficulty making left-hand turns at a number of stops. I know I have that problem when school starts up again. You may have seen the extra crowds at Walmart, but it's probably pretty clear that school is starting, at least for some students. As we see the arrival of school buses, we should be reminded to pray for the students of Cornerstone Bible Church, particularly those who are re-engaging with the lost world. Now, for, for, for some, that, that is involvement in charter school classes or in sports teams. But for others, it's returning to junior high or maybe entering junior high for the first time or re-engaging at high school. For some of our graduating students, it'll be living in the dorm for the first time, and they'll be perhaps around non-Christians for 24 hours a day. For those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll see where this fits in in a minute, this transition will quite possibly be either the beginning of, or for some of them, they know it is the return to suffering for their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, is going to provide essential instruction for students that are facing suffering for Christ. But it is also instruction for all of us who share life with the lost world, whether that's sharing life with our neighbors, sharing life with our coworkers, sharing life with our lost families. And we need the instruction that Peter gives in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. It might be tempted, you might be tempted to say, well, he's given a lot of instruction on suffering. And that's true. What we see in verses 12 through 19 is, is, is kind of like the cliff's notes of, of suffering. It's a little bit more rapid fire. He's going to give a lot of instruction in a short period of time. Responding to suffering has been a major purpose of this letter. Now, Peter will address suffering again as we get near the end of, of chapter 5. But chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, is his last focused discussion on this topic. It gives a list of do's and don'ts and uh, how to think about suffering in a rapid-fire way. And I think for you students who are facing going to college for the first time, or for some of you who are re-engaging high school, or for those who are looking at junior high, these kinds of do's and don'ts, and for some of you, it's, it's as you get together with lost family or the ongoing conversations you have with your coworkers. You need these instructions, so let's read them together. And we'll probably get through verses 12 to 14 this morning. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings, share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will, be that, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This morning from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at three instructions regarding suffering for Christ so that you'll be prepared to suffer. And some of you actually are looking in the, in the weeks ahead that I need to be prepared to suffer as I return to school or as I go to school. Or maybe even further out as you think about time with family during the holidays. We need to be prepared to suffer. And, we're gonna, and, and, and I say we're going to see three instructions. Two of these instructions are, are, are actual instructions Peter gives. And a third instruction is going to be drawn from, from the truth of what he says. And we'll get to those in just a minute. First Peter 4.12 begins with the first instruction, expect to be, sa- uh, expect to be tested. Expect to be tested is the first instruction. Expect to be tested. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is the first new section that Peter has since chapter 2, verse 11. And that was the largest portion of the letter, beginning in 2.11 up to 4.12. Peter begins this last major section of his letter, as he did the previous section, with the affectionate word, Beloved. All the instruction he's given so far has been the overflow of his love for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's true of this section as well. He refers to them as his beloved, his loved ones. These commands, particularly important about suffering, aren't coming down from an ivory tower where just the educated live or some kind of think tank or a legislative body. His instruction is sympathetic, beloved, you can think of these final instructions as, as, as what a, a father might give to their child as they're sending them off to college. Beloved. Peter knows what it is to suffer for the name of Christ. He had, at the very least, been whipped for knowing Christ. He had, we know, from for Acts 12, he had been waiting on death row. His friends had been killed for Christ. At the very least, we knew that he knew James and probably knew Stephen, one of the deacons while he served as elder, or early deacon model person. Peter commands his beloved, his beloved who had gone through suffering, not to be surprised. Don't be astonished at the fiery ordeal, or the ESV as the fiery trial. Literally, that word is the burnings. Used in the, in the Subduja, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Proverbs 27, verse 21, of a furnace that refines gold. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. And that word for furnace in Proverbs 27, 21 is this word here. Don't be surprised at the furnace. Don't be surprised at the extreme temperatures you're going to go through. 
Don't be surprised as you feel your skin drying out as you even get closer, your eyes are feeling parched. With that kind of burning, we don't get any closer than we have to. Peter's word choice of referring to this as this burning, this fiery ordeal, again demonstrates his sympathy. Peter's not a stoic. He's not minimizing what they're going through. Now, from the letter of 1 Peter, this fiery ordeal, it is rejection. It is mockery. It is being hated. It is being ostracized. These things are painful. The letter doesn't tell us that they were going through physical beatings. It doesn't tell us that they were being thrown in jail. It doesn't throw us, tell us that they were being executed. Now, that may have been. But really, the majority we see is this kind of being a social outcast, the very kind of social outcast that students in public high school suffer as soon as they are known as a Bible-believing Christian. And, that, and that's just one example. It can happen in our families and workplaces. This, these sojourning saints faced real suffering. They faced a fiery ordeal. It wasn't as bad as what the Christians would suffer under the Roman Empire soon. But it was real. It's real suffering. And so Peter's understanding here of God's sovereignty doesn't minimize this suffering. Because God, because Peter knows that God is sovereign, it doesn't make it less than suffering. It doesn't sugarcoat it, but it does inform it. And so we see that Peter has included a reason in verse 12 why the saints should not be surprised by the fiery ordeal they were experiencing. He says in the middle of the verse, which comes upon you for your testing. The fiery trial wasn't evidence of God's disfavor. The suffering was for their testing, to demonstrate the real nature of their faith. Peter's already spoken about this in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, there's that refining idea again, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials that they went through was so that they would know the truth of their faith. See, suffering is confirming. Suffering is confirming. When we suffer for Christ, when we continue to cling to Christ, when we do this in submission to Christ, we receive the assurance of our salvation. Both this, that we are currently saved, that we are in a right relationship with God right now, but also that we have a future expectation of salvation, that that salvation that's coming to us belongs to us. We come out of the fire refined, having been sanctified, a pure reflection of the Lord Jesus. We know that we are his and we are increasingly becoming like him. And that is the blessing of this fiery ordeal. We know that we belong to him. Peter says we're not to be surprised by this metaphorical fire, as the end of the verse says, as though some strange thing were happening to you. This, this burning doesn't happen out of the blue. The furnace isn't a fluke storm. It's not like or it's not like rain in Orange County in the summer. It should be expected. You guys should know this is coming. God doesn't hide this truth. Suffering is part of the gospel call. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 24, 
Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we want to follow Jesus Christ, we will suffer with Jesus Christ. He promised suffering. He promised persecution, Matthew 10, 22. He said, you will be hated by all because of my name, but is the one who's endured to the end who will be saved. And that's actually that's this testing that we go through, this enduring to the end. It, even though our family has said horrible things about us, even though we are ridiculed in school, we endure to the end. That is the description of the one who is saved. John 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. Or in John 17, verse 24, he says, I have given, so this is Jesus praying to the Father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. The world's hated them because the disciples, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We are not of this world, so the world is going to hate us. The apostles also promised suffering. It wasn't just Jesus who said this, as if you could have it, just Jesus. The apostles um, in Acts 14, verse 22, and I've quoted some of these verses before as we've gone through Peter. It's so important we see this is not just an isolated suffering. The apostles went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that is how we need to encourage one another who goes through suffering for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. It is through tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Do you expect to suffer in the upcoming months? Do you expect to suffer in the upcoming months? I know for some of us, we go through less suffering. And I'm thinking about this. Why is this? The more we share life with those who don't know Christ, the more likely we are to suffer. And that, that may be for our refusal to participate in sin, or it might be for our loving proclamation of truth. We can limit suffering by limiting interactions with the lost world. You will not be persecuted if you sit alone. The more isolated we are, the less, the, the, the less likely we are to suffer. That's challenging for me to think about. What relationships do we have with a lost world? I mean, if we are living with a lost world, if we are working, if we are getting to know our neighbors, if we are involved with classmates, and if we are loving them, it will propel us into gospel conversations with them. It will be clearer that who we are and who we belong to. But if we're isolated from the world, and some of you have that in God's providence, you only work with Christians. Or you may be a stay-at-home mom who largely spends her day with the lost people in your home, but you don't have as much persecution. It's, it's not criticizing, but it does explain why some of us suffer more than others. The more, and why particularly, students often will suffer a lot for their allegiance to Christ because they are surrounded by those who don't know Christ. So how are you engaged with the lost world? 
How are you engaged with the lost world? If you're suffering now, whether in school or elsewhere, God's ordained fire is testing you, not destroying you. God's ordained fire is testing you, not destroying you. God is a master metal worker. He is expertly overseeing the temperature of your suffering. Great song, How Firm a Foundation says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, in the song God speaking, all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. And that is what the Lord is doing for the suffering that we endure. He is consuming the impurities in us and affirming through our testing that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter tells us we must expect to be tested. We must expect to be tested. Next, he calls us to rejoice in our suffering. That's our second instruction here. Rejoice in your suffering. We see that in verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Instead of being shocked, which is how verse 12 ends, though as something strange or something foreign was happening to you, don't be surprised, don't be astonished. Instead of being shocked, we should rejoice. It says that we can rejoice to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, to the extent that, insofar as, and God is sovereign over that extent. I'm not saying that we should go and try to find some suffering. Who can persecute me? Though maybe we should be guarded and we should question, is there anyone in my life who would be opposed to the gospel? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, we are called to rejoice in all trials. And there is a way that I think that, that, that you can read verse 12. And we know that verse 12 is true about all trials, not just suffering for our commitment and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Verse 13, though, is, is specifically about our sufferings for Christ. James 1, verses 2 through 3, tells us to rejoice in all trials. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, that doesn't say that those trials in themselves are good or enjoyable, but that we are to rejoice in them because of what it produces. Again, we see that testing of our faith produces endurance. That's the goodness of trials. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, the idea of testing again. Proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us, who has given to us. We can rejoice in all trials. But here in verse 13, Peter specifically entrusting, instructing the suffering saints to rejoice when they share in the sufferings of Christ. Specifically, rejoice when you share in the sufferings of Christ. To share means to be a participant in, to become a partner in, to have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. That means to participate in the kind of sufferings that Christ experienced, that he would experience if he were here on earth now. And, and, and we have to be careful with these what-if games. But what, how, what would Christ be suffering for now if he were on earth? 
I can guarantee that suffering would be from all kinds of people. It wouldn't be only from Democrats. It wouldn't be only from Republicans. It would be from both political parties that Christ would suffer. We, it is our suffering because we are like him. It is suffering because we are like him. And it's not talking about suffering in his substitutionary death on our behalf. It's not talking about draining the cup of God's wrath as he did in the place of sinners so that we could have a right relationship with God. It's not talking about that kind of participating in those those atoning sacrifice of Christ. But it's the suffering that he received from hostile hands. The suffering that he would still receive if he were on earth for his proclamation and his demonstration of God's holiness. It's the suffering that is received for a proclamation of God's authority over his creation. It's the suffering that he would receive to the message of man's rebellion and his inability to save himself. It's the suffering that Jesus would receive because he is God and he is Lord. It's the suffering that he would receive because of his proclamation that salvation is in him alone that he alone is the bread of life, that he is the light of the world, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he alone is the good shepherd. Shepherd. That is why Christ suffered on this earth, and that is why he would continue to suffer now. And that is why he does continue to suffer now in us. That's what uh, Jesus said to Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he's like, well, when did I persecute me? Like, when did Paul persecute Jesus? Well, he persecuted his followers. We share in the sufferings of Christ. We go through the same kinds of suffering that Christ would go through. John 7, 7 describes why the world hated Jesus. The world, it says, it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. And that is why we suffer, why we participate in sufferings, but we testify that the world's deeds are evil. And we will see next time that this is not in a medal some way. You let your kids watch that show. Not just meddling, but, but, but when we have time for the earnest conversation with someone. And we say, I am concerned because what you do is against God's law. And you are facing judgment, but there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. When we proclaim that message, there will be suffering. The suffering that we participate in comes from our allegiance to Christ, not just in our, in our confidence in his word, but in our conformity to Jesus' character. By our hating what he hated and by our loving as he loved. This command to rejoice reminds us of how the apostles responded to suffering. In Acts 5, verses 40 to 41, Peter was one of these men here. It talks about how the Jewish leaders uh, took his advice, and not Peter's, after calling the apostles in, including Peter, they flogged them, they whipped them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. We have reason to rejoice because our suffering affirms that we belong to Christ. I got to be counted as belonging to Christ. He is my Lord. I I, I got to suffer for him. 
I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve to be whipped for him. That's, that's what the disciples are saying as they left. And we don't deserve to suffer for his name. It is a privilege. See, this is nothing we should be avoiding. It is a, a privilege. Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted, it has been graced for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We know that believing in Christ is God's great grace upon us. That he humbled us and exposed our sin. And we put our faith in Christ alone. And we've been transferred from death to life. And we're a new creature in Christ. That we have believed in him we know is of grace. Paul says, we've been granted, we've been graced for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That same river of God's grace flowing to us brings belief, but also suffering. So we shouldn't avoid it. Do we avoid grace? Do we avoid kindness? The Peter, the Peter and the apostles, they tasted it. When they'd been flogged, they knew the grace. They knew that they belonged to Jesus Christ and that he was their Lord. That he was risen and resurrected. That he was sovereign over their suffering. That he was sustaining them. This is what made Paul and Silas rejoice in prison. I love uh, when verses have mysteries for us. And this verse has a mystery. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, that you participate in these sufferings, keep on rejoicing. And, 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 and rejoice is a fine way to translate that. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Okay, the verse just got tricky there. We get the first part to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. I'm participating with him. Rejoice. Okay. But then there's a so that there. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Those who rejoice now in suffering for Christ are those who will rejoice later at the revelation of Christ. Those who rejoice now in suffering for Christ are those who will rejoice later at the revelation of Christ. Now, we started the verse with, but to the degree that. This is not saying that it's only those. It doesn't say that it's only those who rejoice who will rejoice later. Who rejoice in sufferings, who will rejoice later. But to the extent that you share the sufferings of Christ, rejoice so that those of you who rejoice now in sufferings will re rejoice at the exaltation, the revelation of his glory, and you're going to rejoice with more joy. Scripture describes the arrival of Jesus Christ in glory. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, in, in, in big, graphic, beautiful, uh, language full of images. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head, on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is Jesus Christ. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thighs, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And what is the heart of those who rejoice in this life, who rejoice in the suffering that we go through now, rejoice as family ostracizes us, rejoice as we are snickered about in classes? What is our rejoicing when we see him return? It is, I'm with him. That's my king. He's coming for me. He's the one I've been proclaiming. He's arrived. And so what do they do? They rejoice with exaltation. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 describes when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's what we do. We marvel and we see him in his glory and our hearts that were already rejoicing hearts are hearts that burst out with joy and exultation. They use two Greek words there, rejoice and exultation. Exultation is joy you can't keep in. It is overjoyed, exalt, exceedingly glad joy, joy that gets vocal. It's the same word used by Jesus in Matthew 5, 12 to describe persecution. We know where Peter got this from. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and exalt, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why, why do they rejoice? Well, those who rejoice while suffering, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation, they are getting what their heart is longing for. See, this is, this, this, is, this is the encouragement and the promise to those who are suffering. You are guaranteed that front row seat, I don't know if it's really front row seat, but guaranteed that firsthand view of the resurrection of Christ and you're going to rejoice. They rejoice because at the revelation of his glory, Christ will reward them. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ when he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. They will rejoice because they will receive the completion of their salvation they obtain as the outcome of their faith, salvation of their souls, we saw in 1 Peter 1.9. They will rejoice because at the revelation of his glory, the glory of Jesus that has captivated their hearts. They will see it in its fullness. They will get what they want most in the world. They will get what they go to his word for. They will see him with new eyes. And this is the encouragement, the, the promise that, that, that the, the so that, that Peter gives to those who rejoice now. Rejoice and you will rejoice in the future at the exaltation of Christ. Isn't that encouraging? But there's warning here in that so that. What if I'm one of those who refuses to rejoice? See, those who refuse to rejoice are not participants of this future glory who rejoice with exultation. Well, they're participants, but they don't rejoice. See, those who refuse to rejoice in sufferings now, those who see misery but no privilege, those who suffer without faith, those who do not have eyes to compare the present sufferings with the glories to follow, they may not continue in Christ. And I can't say that they're not saved, but there is warning here. There is warning. If you don't rejoice in your sufferings now, there is warning. Matthew 13, verse 21 describes those, and it's the parable of the sower, 
who has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. There are those who walk away. Those who don't rejoice, maybe it's because they are in love with the present world. Now, maybe it's because they need to learn what 1 Peter says about suffering. There could be lots of reasons why someone doesn't rejoice. But there's warning here. I mean, what, what is going on in the heart of someone who doesn't rejoice? Is it that they don't understand their unworthiness? That they don't understand that they don't deserve to suffer for Christ? That, that this is a blessing? That, that they shouldn't even be called by the name of Christ? That to suffer for, the, for, for even to have his name belonging to me, I don't deserve this. See, those who rejoice now are those who are submitted to Christ as Lord, right? You would have to be. You would have to know that he is your good king. You would have to know that he is sovereign over suffering. You would have to be trusting and obeying him now. You would have to give your allegiance to him. If you're going to rejoice in him, you have to know him. See, those who rejoice now are those who live by faith. Those who look forward to Christ's return. Those who are longing for that reward. Those whose hope is eternal. And that's why there's a so that here. Rejoicing now tells all kinds of things about you. Peter can say with certainty, you're going to be one of those who at the revelation of his glory rejoice with exaltation. Those who rejoice are the saved. They are those who are blessed by God we're going to see. See, when they see Christ, it is a continuation of their joy. It is a multiplication of their joy. It is a realization of their joy. Now remember, this verse says, to the degree that. This is not the only ones who are saved. But for those who are saved, those who rejoice in the sufferings that they go through are given this encouragement. You are one who will rejoice when Christ returns in glory. That's some of that mystery there of, of, of why is this so that here? So we've seen so far that we're instructed to expect to be tested. Expect to be tested. We should rejoice in our sufferings. And third, we should be comforted by God's approval and presence. Be comforted by God's approval and presence. Now, this is a command. It's, it's phrased here as a command, but there's not, there's not a command in this verse, but I, I think it is a valid application to draw from the encouragement he gives. He says in verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And as we understand that more, I think that that's the application we should draw. We should be comforted. And there's going to be two reasons why. One is God's approval and one is God's presence. The word blessed means to be the privileged recipient of God's favor. To be the privileged recipient of God's favor. To be accepted by God. To be approved of by God. Peter describes who is blessed. Who is blessed? He says, you are blessed if you are reviled for the name of Christ. Now again, he's not saying those are the only people who are blessed. But those who have been reviled for the name of Christ are those who are blessed. Reviled is to be rejected, to be, have insults heaped upon you, to be scorned, 
Jesus uses this word in Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you. And this, this is this word reviled here. And scorn your name as evil. They, can't even, they, they don't even like your name because of your allegiance to Christ for the sake of the Son of Man. Blessed are you. Matthew 5.11, Jesus has a similar blessing. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And that happens. And it's just one of the times that stands out in life. When, when, when you're in school, or maybe when you're in the military, when you are vocal as a Christian, all kinds of lies are told about you. People have all kinds of imaginations of what you're like. Matthew 10, verse 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Jesus was insulted. Jesus was lied about. Jesus was rejected. And Peter says that those who go through the same suffering are blessed. Those rejected by the world for the name of Christ have been accepted by God. Those cursed by the world for the name of Christ are those who are blessed by God because ultimately Christ took our cursing. Those reviled by the world for the name of Christ are recognized by God as his children. Those abhorred by the world for the name of Christ are approved of by God. So if, you are, if your suffering is because of Christ, for your conformity to his commands, your declaration of his deity, your belief in his truth, your submission to his sovereignty, your proclamation of his promises, be comforted by God's approval, you who are blessed by God. You see what, we are, what comfort we are missing out on if we are holding back the gospel. Those who are reviled for the name of Christ are blessed by God. Now, Peter describes the reason why they're blessed. They, are, they, aren't, they aren't blessed because they're going through those things. That's who's blessed. He describes why he calls them blessed. What is the sign of God's favor, you who are blessed by God? What's the, the content of this blessing? And that's seen in the last part of the verse 14. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In Matthew 5, the persecuted are blessed because of what they will receive. It says, blessed are you, and in Matthew 5, 11, let me turn there. We, we, we see the same kind of reasoning. Matthew 5, 11, excuse me. I put these two verses together. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's, that, that's who is blessed and when they are blessed. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. And that's, that's, that's why they are blessed. That's the blessing. Their reward in heaven is great. And scripture teaches that. They are blessed because of what they have to look forward to. But scripture also teaches and Peter talks about not blessed because of what they have in the future, but because of what they have right now. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The Holy Spirit here is described two ways. The spirit of glory, and then perhaps he adds on to make it explicit what the spirit of glory is, the spirit of God. The spirit of, of, of God is described in two ways. The spirit of glory, the spirit of God. God's spirit is upon those who are reviled for the sake of Christ. 
He says that he rests on you. It's settled on you. It's the same word that's used of God's spirit resting on God the Son in Isaiah 11 verse 2 in this prophecy. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, God the Son. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, God the Father equipped his Son, become humble human with his spirit to accomplish his work. And that is indeed a mysterious thing. We see it happening at Jesus' baptism as Jesus is is, uh, devoted to the work that God God the Father has given him as, as Messiah. The Holy Spirit rests on him, equipping God the Son to do the Messiah's work as God the man. But that same Spirit is upon those who belong to Jesus now. It belongs to us who are blessed by him. That Spirit is resting on those who are saved. It is enabling us to be holy. It is enabling us to proclaim the gospel so that we can become like Christ, so that we can suffer with Christ. We have God's Spirit resting on us. Think ultimately this is referring to the indwelling that happens at our salvation. The presence, the, the suffering, don't interpret persecution as abandonment. The presence of the spirit of glory is the evidence of God's grace. It's the evidence of of his desire for relationship with his people. And that's what God's glory was always evidence of in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, verses 16 and 17, describes how the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. So when God's glory came on Mount Sinai, that was evidence of God's holiness. It was evidence of God's presence, but it was evidence that I want a relationship with you, my people. I'm making you my people. His glory, it says in Exodus 40, verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Again, it was evidence of God's desire for relationship with his people. The same thing happened with the temple in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 11. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the holy the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. See, when God's glory settles, it is an evidence of his gracious relationship with man. And so Peter is saying that those who are blessed, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. God is having a relationship with you only made possible through his son but his spirit is with you it's evidence of his communion communion that's only purchased not with the blood of animals but with the blood of his son in ezekiel 10 verse 18 there's really this this horrible picture of god's glory departing from the temple there's so much idolatry going on in the temple that god's glory leaves his, his relationship with Israel was broken. He, that temple was no longer his temple. But Peter's saying that we have confidence as we go through suffering that the spirit of glory and of God is resting on us. There's no breaking of our relationship with him. His spirit enables our communion with the Father. And his spirit enables our obedience through the Son. 
You are the temple, which is spirit, will not depart. The glory won't leave. The spirit rested on the sun while on earth. And now that the punishment of your sin has been paid, the spirit will not leave you either. And this is reason to be comforted, you who go through suffering. Be comforted, the spirit of glory and of God will not leave you, it rests on you. You have been blessed by God. You have been approved of by God. This is the comfort that those who receive, who suffer for the name of Christ. It is the Father's approval. It is the Spirit's presence. And these continue until the Son's return. The Bible speaks of us being sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. Yes, in this life we can't expect to be tested. We can expect suffering as we are in relationship with those who don't know Christ. That relationship grows and we take opportunity to speak into their lives and to proclaim Christ to them. We can expect to be tested. And we're going to know that we belong to him. We can rejoice in our suffering. And we rejoice now, confident that we will rejoice even more when he returns. And we are those those who suffer now are those who are comforted by God's approval, that we know that we are blessed by the Father because we are in Jesus Christ. We are are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on us, because God has made his abode with us, that we are, in an amazing way, only made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ, where God is at home. He dwells with us. We are his people and he is our God. And that will continue forever. And that same spirit, the spirit of glory and of God, enables us to live pleasing to him. And it's only through his spirit uniting us with his son that we can continue as we're tested in persecution and as we rejoice in persecution. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for your word and for your sovereign hand that has led us uh, to First Peter. Uh, Father, these are uh, changing uh, days, Lord, as we see even in California uh, agendas and legislation being pushed about what can and can't be said. And uh, Father, we are aware that increasingly we could suffer. But Father, many of us know uh, the suffering as lost family, rejected us for our commitment to your son or our obedience to him even now. We've faced the scorn of co-workers because we believe what God's word says, because we hold to what your law commands. And we think about the students, Lord, returning to school and how much they will face that, how, how strange they will be to other classmates, Lord. And the scorn that they'll receive for what they don't listen to or what they don't watch, what they won't wear. And this isn't even getting to the glories of the gospel, Lord. And, and when we plead with someone to turn to Christ to be saved, Father, you are sovereign over suffering. And you apportion it, and we've seen that, and, and Peter will see it again, as you will. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us and endure us and help us to strengthen one another with what your word says, Lord. 
I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand your purpose, Lord, so that we wouldn't be surprised. Lord, that we would understand that you are testing and confirming our confession and our commitment to Jesus Christ. Not so that you know, but so that we know. Lord, that we would rejoice, that we would rejoice that we would be counted worthy of suffering shame for his name. We know that we have future glory to come, Lord, that as Christ is exalted, Lord, that as we are in him, that we too will, will receive honor. Lord, we thank you for this great comfort that your spirit of, of glory, that your presence is on those who are reviled, Lord, that those who, who suffer shame are honored by your presence. Father, I pray that these truths would be used well by us, Lord, in encouraging one another and comforting one another, but also in counseling our own hearts, Lord, as we face suffering. Father, we do think about this upcoming week, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us to be wise in taking advantage of opportunities to build relationships. Lord, I, I, I think I increasingly understand that this world just finds us meddlesome if we don't know them. And that doesn't mean we can't proclaim the gospel on the street corners or pass out tracts or knock on doors. Uh, but there, there'll be a certain annoyance to it outside of relationship. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be very wise in building relationships in practicing hospitality with those that we don't know, uh, in, in extending relationships further with coworkers in the amount of time that you've given us outside of the workplace, Lord. Give us wisdom in doing that. Father, and then some of us, Lord, uh, we, we, we think about those of us who are saved, returning to, to classes, we'll just be surrounded, we'll have no shortage of relationships. And please, Father, help them to be good stewards of, of the gospel. Help them not to be afraid of suffering, but to rejoice in being able to suffer for the name of Christ. Please prepare us uh, for a week of ministry to one another, but to a lost world. In Jesus' name, amen.